Hello, and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have David Reeve, CEO of Investorcom. Investorcom is a compliance platform and consulting company that helps companies deal with implementing new consulting changes in a digital format and keep it from crushing us all. <laughs> and with that, here's my interview with David. David, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks. Great to, great to be here with you, Jason. So David Reeve of Investorcom, tell us about Investorcom. Yeah, so um, Investorcom, uh, Jason, has been around for over 25 years. Uh, for the last decade, we've been working exclusively in the wealth management industry and specifically helping wealth firms deal with new regulations. There's been a huge wave of new regulations that have hit the retail wealth space in the last several years. And uh, we really position ourselves as providing compliance pain relief with the uh, technology that we provide to our clients. Technology compliance pain relief. We'll come back to that in a second. I'm going to make a note on that one. So tell me about the history of Investorcom and how it came to be. Yeah, well, I founded Investorcom back in 1992. I'd spent a decade at uh, IBM post, uh, post-graduation. And uh, one of the things, the trends that uh, was happening back in, in those days was the emergence of outsourcing. And I really felt that outsourcing was a permanent business strategy, not, not just a passing fad. And so I founded Investorcom, and the kind of genesis of the business was document outsourcing, that we managed documents for industries like wealth management and other financial services sectors, which are very, very document heavy. And the business really evolved from one of managing physical documents to digital documents and now software. So that's quite the journey, starting from documents. But it makes sense, quite honestly, because let's face it, documentation is how you do compliance, quite honestly, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, certainly uh, in kind of the Western world of wealth, compliance is all about disclosure and disclosures typically resides in documents. So that's kind of the yeah. tissue between our uh, very early days and where we are today. Yeah, I'll clarify. It's, it's kind of two-way disclosure, right? It's it's us confirming that we've confirmed that we've confirmed the information that we need to get due to regulation. So KYC, KYP procedures, stuff like that. And it's disclosure to the client on things that they need to know from us. So it's a two-way communication disclosure that has to be properly documented, right? You're absolutely right. And, you know, I think there's a bit of a debate in the industry whether compliance should be disclosure driven or whether they should, the regulators should be looking at other aspects within the uh, sector. But the reality is compliance has really been focused on disclosure. And you're absolutely right. That's really a two-way street. Yeah. Now, uh, compliance pain. So we're going to look at the concept of compliance pain from two standpoints. One is for the firm and the other one is for the advisors that (laughs) had to experience it. And, you know, there's a lot of pushback on the compliance isn't quite a four letter word, but to a lot of a lot of people in the industry can be. But I always look at it as there's good and bad in every kind of regulation. And frankly, I think a lot of I've spoken to a lot of regulars over the years, and I I sincerely believe that they have the intent of of doing things that are going to that are going to protect people. And that's really what it's all it all comes down to is where can we protect? people. Unfortunately, there's always bad actors and it's hard to control them, but we can make it so that they have to at least do certain things in order to basically act on behalf of the client. So where I'm going with this is, you know, there's been a lot of regulatory change in the last couple of years, you know, in the US, in Canada, around the world, Australia for certain. And this has been, I'd say, we say almost unprecedented to the degree to which we've seen such a compliance wave roll out. Everything from Reg BI in the US to now client-focused reforms in Canada to whatever they called it in Australia. (laughs) But it's a lot. How are the companies react who are in charge, who are supposed to roll this out? How are they responding in general? I mean, they must be overwhelmed and coming to you like looking as if they need a life lifeline. Yeah, I think you know, Jason, overwhelmed is a very, very good word. I mean, you know, every everyone's running their businesses and 
you know, everyone's to-do list is already full and then along comes a new regulation. And you, you mentioned Reg BI specifically. I mean, that's considered to be the most significant wealth reform since the 1930s. So, you know, it is a heavy lift for, for firms. And so, you know, you touched on compliance pain relief and where we play a role. You know, typically that pain finds itself in additional costs that, that need to be uh, rolled out with, within a wealth firm and, and, and often, you know, just a growing compliance team. And, you know, so much of compliance historically has been fairly analog and mm-hmm. human process driven and just layering on more people and spreadsheets and frustration is, you know, the real challenge. And so, you know, what we try and do is, is work with firms to digitize those processes and make some of that cost go away. So you're not just layering on, you know, additional people to comply with these uh, new regulatory requirements. And so that's, you know, that's been an important part of our, our strategy over the last few years. Yeah, there's been one area of any broker dealer or other firm in the world that that basically has been in massive growth for the last 15 years. It's been the compliance department. I mean, quite literally, uh, you know, they they populate like breeding rabbits at this point. Like that's how fast these these things were growing. And now I'm actually starting to notice a reversal of that trend where we're starting to see fewer bodies and more tech. And you're nodding. So can you speak? So speak to me about that that reversal of trend and how you're helping enable that. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Even if you set compliance off to the side, and I'll come back in a moment, but if you just look at the digitization of financial services, that you know, that's certainly been accelerated through the last couple of years or 18 months, certainly through the pandemic, that firms are starting to realize that you can't just can't deal with this by throwing more bodies at it. So, you know, I think there's a couple of things. A firms are adopting a digitization uh, more broadly, and then that is jumping over the fence into the compliance department. I think also the interesting aspect of recent regulations, the ones you mentioned, Reg BI, client focus reform, specifically in North America, those are very, very difficult regulations to comply with without technology. I mean, a lot of, if you look at KYP, for example, we have a, it's got a bit of a tongue in cheek uh, blog that talks about 1 million data points. And we said, you know, the life, the, a day in the life of an, an advisor is making five recommendations with a product shelf of, you know, 30 or 40,000 products have to consider cost, risk, and return. You do that math. And if they were really going to do that analysis, they'd have to consider a million data points. So, you know, the reality is it's just not a human task. And so I think the industry is starting to recognize the value of technology as being, you know, actually a competitive advantage because you don't really need to layer on additional people. Plus you can, you know, meet, meet your compliance requirements without interrupting the workflow of the advisor. So that's, that's, I think, been an opportunity for the industry at large. Yeah, and it's interesting. I have some mixed feelings about this because in general, I look at the regulations and the ones I'm subject to in Canada. I think to myself, well, wow, you're, you're, you're regulating that I should be acting the way that I should be acting in the first place, which is like for anyone who's, who's operating as a professional in most cases and being very thoughtful and, and methodical and evidence-based about their approach, a lot of this is, you know, there's very little change for, for, for some of us. And it's basically forcing everybody into almost the best practice. Like it's 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 kind of a merger of compliance and best practice in a lot of ways. What I'm seeing in both of these reforms, and I get pushed back when I say that because people just don't want to change. But I'm also going to say that entire like that data point thing is valid, but also a bit of a red herring, right? Because in a order execution world where people think where a lot of regulars still think we exist, which is, hey, uh, I'm going to sell an individual small cap value U.S. equity fund to one person. The next the next minute, I'm going to sell someone something else. In that kind of world, yeah, that is a daunting task. That makes that's not 
something that we can do easily. But in a practice management standpoint, if you're developing you know, model portfolios and rolling that across your entire firm, and then just basically validating those portfolio decisions on a semi-frequent basis, you're okay. So I, I don't want to, you know, the data points totally valid, but also it's a it, part of it is a business structure decision every advisor has to make. There's no question. And, and as you well know, Jason, there, there's multiple models of advice out there. So when you're talking about a, a broader sort of portfolio or, or fee-based relationship that firms may have, where there's a portfolio management sort of approach, you know, I think the regulators are a little more focused on uh, the traditional brokerage model where products are being sold and they're concerned about potential conflicts of interest in that channel. The other interesting thing is the amount of change that is happening within products. I mean, every single week, there are about 2,000 changes to mutual funds in Canada, just as an example, some of which are not overly material, but some are very material. Keeping abreast of all of those changes, you know, yesterday, product X might have been a great recommendation and in the best interest of the client. But, you know, next week, perhaps there's a significant change in MER, for example, or, or a change in risk rating. And so just staying on top of those changes that are accelerating is a, is a big deal. And the other thing I think you're, I'm sure, aware of is just the pro- proliferation of new products. Some of the um, illiquid alt products, for example, the regulators are really focusing on because those are products that you know tend to carry higher risk and have less data to be able to analyze fundamentals of those products. So it's it's a world of increasing complexity. And I think what the regulators are saying is is uh, we need to create some standards around how products and advice is uh, is uh, recommended. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I think a couple of interesting points there. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to keep on this note before I go back. And some of the changes we're being able to being asked to make, especially I'm going to address this from the Canadian standpoint, the U.S. standpoint, they're further ahead on a couple of things. So there's a lot of significant changes on both sides of the border, and I want to diminish that. And a lot of them, the bigger ones, have to do with responsibility to the client, which is great, but you know that's not something you're totally going to document necessarily, right? The some of this stuff is straightforward data acquisition. KYC. Some of this stuff is got an expansion of what we were should be should have been doing as a best practice, like risk tolerance assessment, but also has a lengthy history in academia that basically points to how it should be done. And for anyone who wants to see how it should be done, by all means, listen to some of the risk tolerance questionnaires companies I've talked to, like Finometrica and Riskalyze. You know, difference of opinions on that, what what works, but bottom line is there's some backing to it. Some of this stuff yeah. is new ground. Like I have, you know, the entire KYP piece, I have sat on, and on, on sessions with this and no one really knows what the regulars are looking for. And there's no real kind of framework from an academic standpoint as to how you compare these two in a kind of like, this is a definitive way to get to the right answer, right? You can compare things, but we know that, you know, next month when the numbers update, that's all changed and that could change drastically. So this has been a real challenge. I mean, they must've been turning to you saying, not only how do you help us do this, but what the heck are we supposed to be doing in the first place? Right. Yeah. You've stated it. I mean, so many of these regulations are principles based. And so the regulators will come out with a position and it's hard for the industry at times to know what to do. And and to your point, in the absence of standards, you mentioned risk ratings are an interesting example where standards have been established. And, you know, not everyone would necessarily adopt the same standards. But to your point, there's a risk number, for example, if you look at the Riskalyze platform. One of the things we're doing, Jason, which is interesting, is we are attempting as a firm to actually add those standards within the KYP world. And one of the things we've done, for example, on our platform is created something that we call peer ratings. And so, you know, peer products would be products in the same asset class. And the peer ratings is we actually analyze where they kind of the percentile of cost, risk, and return 
And then you create, creating kind of an average of those three factors, come up with a pure rating of zero to 10, where 10 would be, you know, a highly rated product and numbers uh, that would be lower would be a lower rated product. It doesn't mean that 10 to 10, there could be examples why product rated at three is, is the right product for an investor. But the point is, if it's a lower rated product, the regulators are going to want to see uh, some documentation around why that product was recommended. And there could be a whole host of reasons to do that. So, you know, we've, we're getting some really, really good feedback on this uh, peer rating concept. And re really, we're trying to create that standard as a firm for the industry. Well, we're definitely going to see a bunch of different implementations in the next little while and some regulatory pointing and nudging in whatever direction they want. So here's a question going back, I guess, to the earlier part of this. I feel like there's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario going on with some of this regulation. Well, let's face it, without you said earlier, we can't without technology and digitization, we couldn't do a lot of what they're asking us to do. Without the large data sets we have access to and, and everything we've ever the, the, the mountain of data advancement that we've climbed in the last you know 20 years, this is a non-starter. So I almost feel like, is this opportunistic regulation in that we're at a stage where, hey, this is now feasible, so we're going to actually force you to do it? For sure. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the maturity of the industry, the maturity of data sources, third-party data sources. I mean, we couldn't run our business without relying on third-party data sources. And you know what? One interesting example is, I'll just go back to alts for an example. That asset class has a relatively immature data set to compare products across that asset class. So, you know, I think as the industry matures, as data is available, as standards are available, it's a tremendous opportunity for the, the regulators to encourage the industry to adopt some of these standards and leverage technology to be able to, uh, to comply. You mentioned earlier, and I, I think, you know, as you said it, you sort of chuckled about why would the regulators ever have to create a best interest standard? Who would ever not do business in the best interest of their customers? But the reality is, you know, some people may uh, quite unintentionally, you know, recommend products that may not be in the best interest. And, and I think the purpose of this regulation and the technology to support it is just to shine a light on this particular product, maybe the right product for uh, one investor, but not for the other. And as soon as you have that data and the ability to you know, rate those products, I think that capability becomes much stronger. Absolutely. I mean, uh, who would who would not act in the best interest? Well, we, you know, I'm sorry, you know, case law is full of plenty of cases as people who are definitely there for their own interests and not for those of others. And I have God have no mercy on their souls. But beyond that, I mean, it's it's funny. I was thinking while you were talking about, wow, you, you're one of the few few vendors I've ever spoken to that probably gets really excited when people propose a new, new sweeping regulatory change because talk about a world of opportunity for you, right? You can't fall well, it's interesting. I mean, as an entrepreneur, do you think I'm regulation, you know, pro-regulation? Of course not. I mean, but it doesn't matter what I think. Really, the regulators are active uh, now for a variety of reasons. There's political uh, reasons that you're well aware of, if you look at what's going on in the U.S. right yep. now, and uh, you know the change of administration and leadership at the SEC. I mean, there like as we're you know as as one of our advisors says today will be the least imposing from a regulatory standpoint as every day moving forward for the next four years. And so the truth of the matter, the industry is moving that direction. What I get excited about, though, quite frankly, is being able to help our clients comply tick the box, often often yep. build better relationships with their clients by having more informed disclosure and doing all of this in a reasonably economic way. I mean, you know, if we don't deliver solutions that provide high value to our clients, then they aren't going to buy them. And, and so, you know, that's kind of exciting to see someone deal with, you know, what they consider to be 
a massive lift, but being able to do it, you know, in, in a relatively uh, streamlined fashion with technology. Agreed. And I think the, the key here is that we have the, we're at the early stages of what can be considered hopefully the future of massive increases in regulation potentially with minimal increase in disruption to business potentially, right? Because, you know, we do have, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of business. I think if anything, the, the changes going on specifically in Canada, Australia, uh, less so to the US, but still importantly in the US, it's like, again, a lot of this is bringing in best, a lot of stuff you should have been doing in the first place. Some of it's not, I'm not going to defend all of it. Absolutely. I know that, you know, especially on the entire regulation BI versus the universal fiduciary standard piece, you know, that's something that uh, irritates many of us. The point is, is that, the reality is, is that we're still establishing kind of benchmark best practices through this, right? So I think when we look at where we are, once this is implemented, and I'll use Canada as an example, and, and all these things are coming in, I think the a lot of these regulations will be evolutions of what we had there, right? It'll be things like, no, no, you can't use your own make-believe or risk-tolerance questionnaire that has no academic backing. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, get a vendor to tie into that properly who's actually supported that through evidence. And not only that, the, the incremental improvements, hopefully going forward, it's not a giant dumping wave on all of us, but- because we're now going to be working on digital platforms that also enable or, or that connect to all of this stuff and different different sources, as things get you know more serious and more data sources and more things have to be done, it's not about putting the work on the advisor anymore. It's about creating a workflow for an advisor to be able to go through with as little friction and pain as possible while simultaneously extracting the maximum required information in order to make the right decision on behalf of people. And I think that's that's where I find the entire thing exciting is that it's no longer like it's a move away from just filling out paper to actionable information. You're absolutely right. And, you know, one thing that I think we've we've been talking around, but we haven't really uh, labeled as as significant is all of this activity is pre-trade. You know, yes. when you oh my God, yes. compliance, it's it's all about surveillance. It's it's sort of it's for sure all post-trade. And when you think of all of the, um, the, the the false positives, the you know, as as one of our one of my lawyers friends talks about the kind of the dumpster uh, data search, you know, the, the, this whole view of I'm now going to look at what my team has done, what my team of advisors had done, and try to identify the good and the bad. What's really interesting about this regulation, Jason, is it's all pre-trade. And you know what? We were very involved in some pre-trade stuff um, five year five years ago in Canada with point of sale, where the re, you know the regulator yeah. said you need to disclose a point of sale. Well, all of this, when you look at KYP, even this some of the risk and, and KYC items you're talking about, this is all pre-trade stuff. And I think what the opportunity for the industry is is to reduce the I'll call it the exploding cost of post-trade surveillance. Oh, yeah. Because and change behaviors upstream, ultimately, you're going to vastly reduce, you know, what you need to deal with uh, kind of at the back end of the process. And, and kind of, you know, when you, when you think of whether you want to use the analogy of kind of looking through the back window or looking through the windshield or, you know, steering by the wake or, you know, what, whatever the examples are, I think moving some of this diligence up to pre-trade is actually a pretty big opportunity for the industry. 100%. I mean, the simple fact that most compliance took place in a, in a post-trade world, it was like, you know, the damage already is done. And, and you know, we're trying to, and, and the question becomes just how far after the damage is caused, does it get detected? And what's the impact on it? And especially because in a pre-evolved data structure world, even harvesting that information reports was borderline impossible. And that's that's where we're moving towards. I think one of the other things that is is really a positive for this, I think there's, there's always going to be a period of digestion of new changes into like, you know, we've got to adopt this before a deadline. So now it's going to be the, the peak burden 
peak burden is right before deadline. After peak burden, it becomes how do we evolve all this into something less painful? And in particular, I think you know the simplest example is how the robo advisors and their onboarding software changed a lot of the way we view on onboarding clients. It was they look to eliminate points of friction and get you from the moment that you've already decided on a portfolio. Great, now we're going to collect all this information with you, get the the data, the data uh, populated in the forms, and get you to e-sign as quickly as possible. And if I, I think about, I remember the first time I downloaded a robo advisor app. And I managed to fund the thing inside of like four minutes. I was immediately impressed, and then I was immediately infuriated. Then I was subsequently infuriated because I considered what was my experience like afterwards. And then when I started thinking through the fact that the number of errors that are committed along the way was infinitesimal to non-existent in comparison, I never had to go back for signature that I missed on page one forty-seven out of three hundred. I never had to, you know, I couldn't, you know, the client couldn't progress unless the information was there. So. The pre-trade piece absolutely is incredibly important, but I also think the, the the opportunity for unifying consumer experience around compliance. So it's not a burden, it's information, and it's information presented to them in a way that's educational and a positive experience. You're absolutely right. And, you know, I, I think your example of onboarding is great. And it's also interesting how that's evolved. I mean, when you think of sort of the FinTech 1.0, where, you know, those platforms, if you look at Robo, for example, they were all about disrupting, you know, the traditional wealth firms. And I think Many have pivoted because it's uh, you know a pretty difficult challenge to really scale those businesses. People like dealing with people. <laughs> but, but but you know what, Jason, the win absolutely is, for example, digital onboarding, which really is a holiday invention of robo that now as they've moved to a B2B model, you know, uh, traditional wealth firms are enjoying that. And of course, the user experience is dramatically better and more efficient. So it's a, that's a great example of a big win for the industry. So if you were to sum up the bigger, like kind of overarching trends you're seeing around the world and the bigger challenges in terms of, of regulation, and then by all means, tell me how you're solving or helping people with this, what would you say they are? Well, I mean, I certainly won't put myself out as an expert around the world, but, you know, as you know, certainly in the Western world, and you include your example of Australia in that, you know, there's fairly common sort of regulatory standards. Really, what we're seeing is, is a heightened focus for sure on KYP. And as the proliferation of products increases and accelerates using, you know, strong data sources to be able to manage that process, I mean, that's that's a, that's a really important aspect of, of the regs. If, for example, if you, if you talk to big wealth firms in the U.S., and I would say in Canada as well, the care obligation in the, uh, under Reg BI is the biggest challenge. I mean, can people figure out a form CRS or some new disclosure and deliver that to a client? That's I would say that's fairly easy lift. But when you get into some of the requirements where you need to have advisors change behavior, that's where it becomes much more challenging. And, and frankly, advisor adoption is a huge issue as well. You know, when you think, here we are in Canada where you have, I don't know, 80% of wealth is controlled by the bank channels or certainly controlled by, I'll call it corporate wealth. And the US, there are so many independent broker dealers that, you know, really cannot impose uh, technology on their advisors. So, you know, they're kind of walking the carrot stick sort of a line in terms of I purge the adoption of technology and how do I pick partners that can help us see you know, really high advisor adoption. And then you start thinking about highly intuitive, non-disruptive applications. One of our advisors repeats the term that great technology is invisible, which I would agree with. And so, you know, you need as, as a partner to firms, you need to start thinking about those elements of making technology as invisible as possible. So this isn't interrupting the workflow of a 
advisor. An advisor are salespeople, and I've grown I've grown up uh, in my career in, in the world of sales, so I get it. I mean, I don't like administration. I don't like you know people telling me to do things that may feel uh, to be you know disruptive to the selling process. So so I think those you know that that whole area around adoption and encouraging adoption, making technology as light and invisible as possible is you know, vitally important as we move forward. And of course, fortunately, technology is uh, moving that direction as well. Yeah, I mean, I often say, you know, they get really frustrated sometimes because people always look for this kind of salvation from a, the tech piece. Like, they, you know, I want to buy this software to fix all my problems. And it's like, that's not going to fix your problems. Like, your technology, well, it needs to, like, it wasn't at this part. So I'm often quoted now as saying that your strategy, technology is not your strategy. Technology needs to enable your strategy. And that's the thing that's lost upon people. Everybody's looking for a magic or a silver bullet. But further to the comment about the burden of this stuff and, and the independence side, I mean, I, I have my opinions on that. It's like, great, impre- increase their personal liability and let's see how how they don't you know want to comply with it but i often and i've said this before i'm often shocked and amazed at some of the things i see people post on linkedin in arguments where it's like really you're going to publicly argue against the fiduciary standard and us knowing who our client is so they can make suitable recommendations based off of what's available in the marketplace knowing that those two things match up it's like any advisor who's listening to this who gets bent out of shape about seriously take a step back and imagine what it would look like if your clients heard you saying this like, do you think they're going to feel like they're dealing with the right person? Probably not. Yeah. Complaining about compliance burden to know to to do the right thing is is not one way to differentiate. That's that's for I, sure. no, I, I agree. I mean, you know, I think I think one of going back to advisors because he's he's full of great cliches, but uh, you know, his, his comment is, you know, you, you have to eat your vegetables. I mean, that's just the reality. I mean, if you're going to if you're going to operate in a fiduciary manner, you, you've got to you know demonstrate and and you know, show evidence that, that you've done this work. And ultimately, will this improve your practice? Will this allow you to grow your practice? Of course it will, because what you're being asked to do ultimately is going to build stronger relationships with your clients. And let, let me give you a quick example. If one of us held a product in our portfolio and all of a sudden uh, your advisor pings you and said, uh, hey, Jason, as of 24 hours ago, this MER has changed or this risk rating has changed. And, you know, I think we should have a conversation around that product. How is that going to be received? I think we know the answer to that. That's highly informed yeah. advisor want to create noise and be pinging people all the time. But, you know, when there is a material change within your portfolio, you know, you're, you're, you're going to, I think, have a much more positive view of advisors that are ahead of that. Uh, bringing that to your attention. Or with even, I would say, a lot of the technology we're putting in front of clients for semi-self-service or or to monitor the behavior, like how that informs the KYC piece, right? Like the, oh, I can see that this person used to show that at least to log in once per month and they logged in every day for the last two weeks. Like they must be nervous about something like what's going on and being able to understand where their anxieties are and things like even some of the effect of oftentimes we only update the KYC once a year, or they forget, they forget to tell us about smaller things like a change in job title or promotion, whatever it is. And we're obligated to know that stuff. And, you know, we go to update our paperwork once a year and it's been, oh yeah, that happened 11 months ago. The ability to take in that data from other sources or for them to self-select and to update that and push that to us, we're just getting a, there's, there's so much opportunity for compliance to be a strength for both the advisor and the firm. And I get the old paradigm of pushing more paper down on people. That's, I think, where compliance gets its bad, it's, it's bad name is we're pushing more paper on people. But I think if we, if smart compliance people think about genuinely enjoyable processes that don't get in the way, like you said, invisible, the dynamic will change within a generation of advisors. Yeah, I completely agree. Absolutely. Excellent. So David, this has been 
I got to tell you, I always worry a little bit some, sometimes about the compliance conversations, about how engaging they're going to be. I think this was, I, I think I should title this one, the future of compliance, quite honestly, because I think we, we covered a lot of really positive, positive aspects of how the relationship in compliance with advisors and firms is changing through digitization. And I'm laughing because, you know, of course, wealth or financial services compliance, many people would say kind of ho-hum, you know, watching paint dry. I think, you know, what the opportunity is. And this is true in any industry with, with any challenge or opportunity is how do you turn compliance into a competitive advantage? And that's really that's really what we're what we think about with our with our clients. And it's kind of, uh, you know, death taxes and compliance. I mean, it's, it's just a reality. But can we reimagine how we you know address this? To your point, can we truly eliminate paper and, and uh, turn these uh, advisor investor experiences into something more digital and added value? And so there's some big opportunities there, Jason. And yeah, I love chatting with you about it and would love to uh, continue the, the conversation at any uh, at any point in time. Fantastic. Happy to. Yeah, no, it's uh, like I said, it, I think, again, the entire experience piece is what's missing from the compliance conversation, but that is being discovered now, which is which is great for everybody involved. So, David, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. Really nice chatting. Take care. So that was my interview with David Reeve of InvestorCom. I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope you can see that at its core, compliance is about protecting all of us. And if we do it right, like what David and I talked about, it can actually add to the experience as opposed to detract from it. So that's my utopian view of the world when it comes to compliance. Hopefully, everybody else starts to adopt that too. And with that, as always, this has been Jason Perron, Fintech Impact. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is at your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.